And in case I forget or anybody forgets, let me just uh, announce that the CLC is taking nominations for uh, who will be serving on the next CLC. I know that uh, Paul is rotating off in May, and we have a process where we encourage you uh, to write in nominations to be considered for who will serve next. I think those ballots are in both of the four years. You can also feel free to, to send in your nominations, and then they'll go through a screening in a couple of weeks. Also, uh, this isn't really exactly a church-wide announcement, but how many of y'all have seen the Jesus Revolution? Isn't that amazing? I mean, if you have not seen the Jesus Revolution, I'm telling you, it'd really be a nice Holy Week thing to do. Now, don't do it on Monday, Thursday, because we have a service. And then Good Friday, there's a concert downtown. It's going to be amazing. Then there's Easter Sunday. I'm just saying, it's going to be busy around here. But if you've not seen that movie, I really couldn't recommend it more strongly. Just a very, very powerful, well-done Christian movie. Just a well-done movie, period. This is, of course, Palm Sunday. And I have to tell you that growing up, this was one of the most confusing days to me. Because I didn't get it. Like, I don't understand. Jesus comes into town on Palm Sunday. Everybody's super excited. And then within a matter, that's the one we're replacing on CLC. Yeah. So it's not just because he spills coffee or anything. It's his time is up. So this another, thank you for helping with that announcement again. Uh, but you know, like really on Palm Sunday, it's, isn't it, isn't it kind of a little confusing? Like, hey, everybody's super stoked about Jesus coming to town and they're jumping and cheering and singing and laughing and, and then they're shouting for him to be crucified a few days later. And like, that's just crazy how that turned so fast. So that didn't make, that made no sense to me at all. I didn't figure it out until I was at least in my 20s what was going on. And I don't think I ever had a clear explanation as to what happened. How, how the quick turnaround, yeah, 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 we know the crowds are fickle, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, come on. That's just, that's just crazy. So this morning I'm going to explain, I think, and it's going to be a very heavily explanatory sermon, but I, but I hope this is very helpful to you. I want you to understand Palm Sunday and the, and the backdrop and the, and, the, and the setting. So it will just make sense to you. And I, and I hope by the time this is over, it will all make perfect sense to you. But before I even get into it, let me just kind of give you the meat of it before we get started. The reason people turn so quickly on Jesus is because they never really had the real Jesus in the first place. I mean, Jesus, of course, has always been consistent with who Jesus is. But people really, really misunderstood Jesus. They thought he was one way, and it turned out he was entirely different than what they expected. That wasn't on Jesus. That was on the people. But when they saw with great clarity that they were not going to get what they wanted and Jesus was not the Messiah that they wanted, that's when they shouted, crucify him. Jesus really didn't change. People were just kind of confused about the nature of Messiah. Now, in our culture, really in in the human race, there's almost like an instinct inside of all of us that says something's gone terribly wrong with this world. The human race has made a mess of things. And so we need somebody 
bigger, stronger, faster, something-er to come along and fix everything up. And so we have all these hero stories. We've got ancient myths, medieval myths, modern myths. You look at the ancient myths, there's Hercules and there's Thor, and Thor's made a comeback. And then there are modern myths like, you know, Batman, Spider-Man, and Iron Man. And for me, growing up, it was Superman. Uh, you know, str- faster than a speeding bullet, stronger than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. And I always thought, why would Superman want to jump over a building? He can just fly over. But that never made sense. But I did want to be like Superman because, you know, you'd see him bend the steel and stuff and the old, you know, the black and white stuff, which I watched as a kid, like a little bitty kid. And uh, my parents told me practice makes perfect. And so I practiced on chicken wire. Because I wanted to become Superman. And then I figured out over time, parents don't tell their kids the truth. Because practice didn't make perfect at all. I was never going to be Superman. But I kind of figured that if I was in trouble, Superman would come to my rescue. Or I'd want Superman to come to my rescue. These have been myths like this, I guess, since the beginning. Because maybe it's just a human instinct, maybe it's a trace memory, we don't know, but, but we just all sense there's something wrong and someone other than us is going to have to come and save the day. Now, in Jesus' day, people were waiting for a Superman. They called him Messiah, and the people knew this is not what the kingdom is supposed to be. And for the longest time, the people of Israel suffered as an oppressed people. Foreign powers would come and go through the land, and very rarely did the Israelites, at least for the last few centuries, have much liberty at all. They knew things weren't right. They couldn't quite make it happen, but they saw in the Scriptures that there were these promises about one who was yet to come. They called him Messiah, and by the time Jesus actually came onto the scene, there had been quite a bit of debate, discussion, writing about who this Messiah was going to be and what he would be like. And there were some disagreements, but there was, there was common core certain things that everybody agreed on. Okay, for starters, just know that Messiah means anointed one. And uh, that, that meant literally that it translates a Hebrew word that means anointed with oil and commonly... That would be kings. Now, sometimes prophets and priests, but by the time Jesus arrived on the scene, people associated Messiah, the anointed one, with a king. And it's important for us to remember, too, that when Jesus comes onto the scene, when people were waiting for the Messiah, they weren't necessarily anticipating that a Messiah would be God in the flesh. Now, as Christians, as Trinitarians, as people who know about the doctrine of the Incarnation, for those who've who've been through Christmas and all the rest, we sort of wrap up the incarnation with the Messiahship of Jesus. But in Jesus' day, people were not anticipating that Messiah would be God in the flesh. And so if somebody ever claimed to be Messiah, they were not blaspheming. It was not blasphemy for somebody to say, I'm the Messiah. The proof would be found in the pudding. I mean, if a Messiah claimed to be Messiah, people would know that he was the Messiah or not if he did what the Messiah was supposed to do. But just claiming to be Messiah wasn't blasphemous. 
And there were two marks of the Messiah, two things they were supposed to do when they ushered in the Messianic age. And everybody agreed on this. One, they would kick out or remove or deal with Israel's enemies. And two, they would restore right worship in the temple. Like David. Okay. David's the great king of Israel's history. And you remember when David is anointed, the first thing he does is defeat Goliath and the Philistines. And then the last thing he does is draw up plans for the temple. And so in Jesus' day, the most popular title for Messiah was Son of David. Because the Messiah would be literally a son of David, of the genealogical line of David. And like David, the Messiah was expected to deal with Israel's enemies, and restore right worship in Israel. That's Messiah. Now, when Jesus is born, when he comes into the world, there's somebody who's, humanly speaking, running the show. His name is Herod the Great. And King Herod, although he never claimed to be the Messiah, didn't say he was the son of David, was not a descendant of David... When he was made ruler by the Caesar over Israel, he did a couple of really interesting things. First, early on, he dealt with one of Israel's regional enemies. He defeated one of Israel's regional enemies in battle. And then, also very early on, he rebuilt the temple. Herod the Great did all kinds of building projects, but one of the things that was a pet project of his was rebuilding the temple. And then he also petitioned Caesar to give him the title... King of the Jews. Okay, so here's Herod. He's, he's not a descendant of David. He doesn't claim to be the Messiah, but he deals with regional enemies. He rebuilds the temple. He is given the title King of the Jews. Well, why does he do all this? Because he wants to stop any messianic movement before it ever gets started. Remember the whole story when the babies are born and like he's going to slaughter all the babies? Why? His, his radar is up. His antennas are up about messianic movements going to stop it before it even has a chance to get started. And so there's this passage that we read around Christmas time where the Magi who come from the East, they say, where is this one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw a star in the East and come to worship him. And and, and this is not a title that people made up in the Bible. People fought and died over the title, King of the Jews, the anointed one, the king. And, of course, Herod gets upset and all of, uh, all of Israel with him. And so he calls together the chief priests and teachers of the law and says, where's this one who's supposed to be born King of the Jews? And they find out. Where the Christ is to be born, actually, is how the translation reads. Where is this one who's, who's to be born the Christ? That's the Greek word. For Messiah. A lot of times we use the word Jesus Christ like, oh, Christ is Jesus' last name or something. It's not. It just, again, gets all rolled up into one. And again, the proof of who would be the Messiah, who would be the Christ, is when this wannabe Messiah or the self-proclaimed Messiah rose up, what would be the results of his movement? Would he defeat the enemies of Israel? And would he restore right worship among the people of God? So obviously when Jesus comes into the world, there's been a whole lot of thinking, a whole lot of writing, a whole lot of anticipating around Messiah. But Jesus, and Jesus can do this because he's Jesus, Jesus had entirely different ideas 
about the nature of the kingdom that was to come. For Jesus, life in the presence and the power and the love of God was for the whole world, and it was available for people to come in. And since Jesus has a different understanding of the kingdom, he obviously is going to have a different understanding of the kingdom bringer. So there's this important point where Jesus is anointed. He's baptized by John. That's not an anointing in a classic sense. But remember, Messiah, anointed one, anointed with oil, anointed by the Holy Spirit. It's all wrapped up together. Jesus, at the baptism of John, he's anointed, not symbolically, but literally. The text tells us that the Holy Spirit came upon him in the form of a dove. It's not that that a dove came down on him representing the Holy Spirit. The text tells us that, no, the Holy Spirit himself anointed Jesus with himself. Jesus is anointed in a way nobody else has ever been anointed. And at this anointing, John says something really interesting. John doesn't say, behold, look, everybody, the Messiah who's going to kick out the Romans and cover Israel in glory. He says, no, look, behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Okay. I've already established different people at different times would rise up and claim to be the Messiah. Guess how many people ever claim to be Lamb of God? Nobody. You know what happens to the Lamb? It gets slaughtered. Yeah, it gets gets slain. It gets sacrificed. Nobody ever claimed to be the Lamb of God because... Every year at Passover, families would select a lamb that that would be without blemish, the best that they would have, and that would be the sacrifice. It was a a way of people saying or confessing publicly in accordance with the Scripture and the direction of God, the human race has messed things up. We've got a problem, and we can't fix it ourselves. It has to be forgiven. It has to be dealt with. It has to be atoned for. And, And very much part of Jesus' message, if not the heart of Jesus' message, is we don't just have a Roman problem, an out there problem. Our biggest problem is an inside problem. Our biggest problem is a sin problem. Now, it's hard for people to get that when they're so obviously oppressed. I want this to sink in for just a second. And I don't want you to raise your hands on this because it's kind of embarrassing. But, I mean, how often is it that when we start thinking about our problems, immediately we start thinking politically? And I'm not saying that you're wrong, okay? This is not a taking sides thing. But almost always, every day, if not multiple times a day, your average American thinks about problems in terms of political issues, economic issues, social issues, out there issues. So let's not make fun of people in Jesus' day for having a hard time of getting Jesus because they are literally oppressed and occupied by a foreign power. Let's just say next year, China invades America and takes over our economic system and we can't print any money and we can't do anything without the permission of Chinese central bank digital currencies and we are absolutely pressed and we don't get to go to church anymore because it's against the rules of the state. And, you know, you're probably going to be thinking our number one issue is getting rid of China. In Jesus' day, it was natural for people to say, you know what really needs to happen around here? 
we got to get rid of the Romans. So let's not make fun of them taking a while to kind of come around. But for Jesus, even in this incredibly oppressed situation, the biggest problem that he came to solve was not the Roman problem or the out there problem, but the in here problem, our sin problem. The problem that we have oftentimes is we just don't see the problems the way Jesus sees the problems. In fact, most of the time when we're looking at out there problems, the reason they're out there problems and not in here problems is because in some respect or another, we're kind of the solution to the problems. It's amazing how often we think about political problems where you have somebody that's in a relational issue, it's the other spouse problem or it's the other person problem or the other company problem or whatever it is. We have this kind of tendency to think that we're the ones who are part of the solution. We, we, we tend to look at ourselves as kind of little messiahs in different respects or another. We want to control things. Years ago, I, there, there's this book. It's pretty interesting. You've probably heard of it. I know I've talked about this before. It's entitled The Three Christs of Ypsilanti. It was written by Milton Rokeach. He was a, a psychotherapist who worked in a mental institution in Ypsilanti, Michigan. And uh, while he worked there, there were three people who had Messiah complexes, like full on. They thought that in different respects they were the Messiah. And, and so he, he wasn't helping them. And so they put them together in a group. The group therapy didn't help, but it made for some interesting conversations. Like one of them would say, okay, I'm on a mission from God to save the world. And Milton would say, well, how do you know? And, and the person would say, because God told me. And somebody else in the group would say, I never told you any such thing. And so you had these kinds of conversations. They never got any better. But it's kind of interesting because after you read that or you get exposed to that, you think, I could probably write a book entitled The Three Christs of Georgetown. I could probably write a book entitled The Three Christs of Main Street Baptist Church. In fact, I could probably write a book entitled The Three Christs at 130 Westbury Lane. But if I wrote it, Gina would get mad because I would leave her out. It would just be me, Nathan, and Shelby, okay? Because I think Gina's awesome. But here, here's my point. We all have a tendency to want to play Savior. We all have a tendency to want to play God. It goes back to Papa and Grandma. We call them Adam and Eve. And, and there's this moment where the serpent says to Eve, if you eat of it, the, this fruit, if you play God, your eyes are going to be open and you're going to be like God. And we just have this kind of built-in thing, like I just know better than God. In fact, I, we don't even talk in terms of me being on God's side. I just want God to be on my side or God's on my side in this debate and all the rest. And, and we just think in some respect or another, if we could just, you know, bow up, if we just had the, the reins for a day, if we just could, could play Messiah for a day, everything would be fixed. And, you know, the real solution is not to us playing Messiah. The real solution is for us to stop playing Messiah. It's to stop wanting to play God. In fact, I would even look at the church as a bunch of wannabe messiahs that are in recovery. We probably ought to do things around here a little differently than we do. You know how at recovery groups you say something like, Hi, my name's Ernest. I'm an alcoholic. We probably ought to start out every Sunday like this, like a group confession where I just say, I am not the Messiah. And all God's people said, Amen. Yeah, something like that. Or, or we, do, we do small groups where you just tell the person next to you, I'm, I am not the Messiah. In fact, let's just go ahead and do that. If you're seated next to somebody, just tell them, I am not the Messiah. Okay, now, if you could say back to that person, I know. <laughs>
Okay. But, I'm, but, I'm, but I'm glad you know it too, okay? We, right? We have control issues. And you say, oh, I don't have control issues. Listen, if you rebel against God, if you're not doing everything God tells you to do when he tells you to do it, what do you think that is? I know better than you. I can run my own life. If you're going to say to God, that's off limits, I'm sorry, you got control issues. Okay? Okay, I'm sorry. Hey, look, you know, what are y'all going to do? Like, fire me? You know, uh, ha-ha, you know. Uh, which, by the way, uh, they haven't voted on me yet or anything like that. And somebody said, well, good, that's nice to know. I'm going to go over there and badmouth you at the vote at 5 o'clock. Anyways, please don't do that. Um, love y'all. But we, we are want to be Messiahs in recovery. Okay? Jesus comes along and he's trying to fix that as the one true Messiah. <laughs> because what we really need saving from is, is our sin. What we really need saving from, in a, in a real sense, is ourselves. It's hard to get. So Jesus has to do this interesting thing. It makes a whole lot of sense. He's got to get together a group of people, a small group of people. We call them disciples. So he can help them to understand that maybe the kingdom isn't what they expected. And so the kingdom bringer is going to come in a way that they weren't anticipating. That the kingdom that he was bringing wouldn't just be for Israel, but for the whole world. And that it wouldn't be brought about by coercion, force, and violence, but love and servanthood and sacrifice. But the disciples, as it turns out, they're kind of slow learners too. Like everybody. Well, Jesus has been pouring into this group for a while and teaching on the kingdom. And finally, his time has come. The, the Bible tells us that Jesus knew that it was time for him to leave this world and return to the Father. And here's how it's put in one passage in the book of John. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. And so now it's Passover Sunday. And, and the Passover before Sunday is known as Lamb Selection Sunday. And this wasn't something that people made up. This goes back to the Old Testament. In the book of Exodus, the people of God are told on the 10th day of the month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. <coughs> now, we have a tendency to think, oh, yeah, yeah, Passover, they just took the lamb and killed the same day. No, no, no. They, they do the selection on the Sunday before Passover. And that lamb was supposed to be the one without blemish, the best that they had. And it will be slaughtered for the, for the atoning, for the covering of sins. Okay. So it's on Lamb Selection Sunday that Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on Passover. Now, Passover is a pretty well-attended event. I mean, Jerusalem, different estimates would say two, up to three times, two and a half times the normal number of people would be there because people are coming to remember what? The Exodus. Remember the Exodus? That's when everybody was under the oppression of the, one of the worst people on the face of the planet, the Pharaoh. And it was the most powerful army on the face of the planet at the time. But God liberated the people. Remember how God does this? He does it largely through a, a man. He's an imperfect man, but God raises up this person named Moses who stands up to the strongest force in the world, the Pharaoh and the Pharaoh's army. And God delivers the people out of their bondage. It's an amazing moment. And people every year remember their liberation from this horrible, oppressive political power. You see some connections? 
See, in Jesus' day, when people would write about Messiah and think about Messiah, there were connections to Moses. There were obvious connections to David, but they also had connections to Moses because people longed for someone to do what Moses had done before, to rise up now against Caesar and to drive out the most powerful army in the world, the Roman army. So it's a an explosive situation in Jerusalem. People are thinking about their oppression. I mean, it's almost like, you know, if you, it's like, you know, maybe you shouldn't watch Fox News 12 hours a day because by the end of it, you just kind of want to punch somebody. Okay? Hey, hey, that wasn't an amen. That was a confession. Okay? So it's like, you know, maybe I should limit my time. I'm just saying. I'm not picking on anybody. I'm just saying, Jared, we're going to talk later. Anyways... But you know what I mean? And so here they are, packed, and they're just thinking and thinking and thinking about oppression and oppression and oppression. It's a powder keg moment. And the Romans understand this too. The Romans understand it's a dangerous time to be in Jerusalem because this is when Messianic uprisings get started. Okay, Jerusalem is packed. And uh, and if if any wannabe Messiah wanted to announce themselves publicly, that was the place and that was the time to do it because people were in the mood for revolution. So they would add extra battalions. They would beef up the security, Rome would. In fact, there was this rabbinic tradition because people were so thinking about the Messiah coming to Passover that at least in this rabbinic tradition that the rabbis would leave the curtain in the temple open because they thought, hey, maybe this year Messiah will show up for Passover. In the middle of all of this, Jesus comes riding into town on a donkey. You say, well, yeah, so. Well, it's actually quite significant because in the Old Testament, in Zechariah, there's this prophecy. And uh, God says to the people of Israel, see your king, the anointed one, Messiah, comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And by the way, in the verse before, the prophet is making it clear that this is going to end oppression. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people. So the people know this book. The people know what Jesus is doing. They know Jesus knows the book. And so Jesus comes riding into town into this politically intense situation filled with oppressors, thinking about Moses and liberation and he's riding on a donkey, and the people get worked up. And so Luke says, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices. The implication is they had been kind of quiet in Jerusalem because even though they were seething, they were seething kind of beneath the surface of things. That is to say, they knew Rome was on edge. They know they're being watched. They know the security's been beefed up. They know it's an intense situation. So everybody's just trying to do their thing under the radar. Let's make it through Passover and move on to something else. But then when they see Jesus, okay, remember, Jesus is the most famous person in Israel. He's done all kinds of miracles. He's raised the dead. I mean, here is a supernatural, miracle-working, larger-than-life, possibly superhuman-ish, Superman. And he's riding on a donkey into Jerusalem at the time when messiahs would announce themselves to begin revolution. The people go crazy. 
And we're told over in Mark chapter 11, verse 8, and Matthew chapter 21, verse 8, that the people took their branches. So they had clothing. There was like, you know, cloaks and, and you know, their garments and, and branches, and they'd throw them on the ground before Jesus and the donkey upon which he rode. Okay, now let me just ask you. What kind of branches, and the Bible doesn't say that they waved them around. They probably did. Historians say, yeah, yeah, that's perfectly fine. So they're waving branches and they threw the branches. What kind of branches do you think people were using on that original Palm Sunday? Palms. It's not a, it's not a trick question. You got it. Palms. They weren't olive branches. Olive branches would be, you know, for peace and love, but this is not olive Sunday. It's Palm Sunday. Do you know what the palm branches represent? It's kind of hard to, to, to say it's simply. Okay, so let me give you the historical background. This is going to help a lot. Okay. In the century before Jesus, Rome wasn't really in power yet. It was still the Greek Empire. And there was a, a branch of the Greek Empire, the Seleucid Empire, that was in control of Israel, in control of Jerusalem. They're called the Seleucids. It was the century before Jesus comes onto the scene. And under the Seleucid dominion, Jews were not allowed to sacrifice in their own temple. They could not sacrifice lambs, the prescribed sacrifice on the altar. Here's what was happening. The Seleucids, these Greeks, had dedicated the Jewish temple, the temple of God, to the Olympian god, Zeus. And so these foreign pagans were sacrificing pigs, unclean pigs on the altar to their pagan god. It was an abomination. In addition to this, the Seleucids burned scrolls of the Torah, scrolls for which any self-respecting Jew would have died. It was an absolute disastrous, grotesque mess in the eyes of the Jews. So there's this one man, his name was Judas the Maccabean. Have you all heard of the Maccabean revolt? Does that sound familiar? Okay. Judas the Maccabean leads this revolt. It's somewhat successful. And uh, one of the Maccabean family, eventually they they become high priests in the temple and all the rest. But the, the followers of Judas the Maccabean, they displayed something so that everybody would know that they were followers of Judas the Maccabean. Guess what was the symbol of the Maccabeans, the people who followed Judas? The palm branch. That was the sign of the revolution. So following this Maccabean revolution, the Israelites had at least enough freedom so they could mint their own money. Now, when they minted their own money, when they produced their own coins, they wouldn't put the face of human beings on it because that would have been a graven image in terms of you know, strict Judaism. So they put something else on their coins. Guess what they put on their coins? The palm branch. The palm branch was the sign of independence, of effective revolution, of casting out the foreigners. So imagine that you're a Roman and you see all these people, you know, waving palm branches and casting the palm branches for Jesus. You think they had warm fuzzies? No! This was a political revolution beginning before their very eyes, okay? That's how they would have seen it. In the, in the Roman regulated hallmark stores of Jerusalem, nobody sold palm branches. Okay? Now it's, it's, again, I say it's always confusing around Palm Sunday because at Palm Sunday it just feels so sweet. You know, the kids are walking through and they're waving palm branches and, 
And, uh, you know, Sarah's playing a really sweet, you know, background music and it just feels so warm. It feels like, you know, oh, baby Jesus has come, only it's like Palm Sunday or something. And I'm not trying to, to put down any of our traditions, okay? I know every Christmas I have somebody that comes to me and says, hey, you know that the wise men weren't really at the manger with the shepherds. Yes, I know. You know, the con- yes, 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 I know. Thank you. Thank you for reminding me of that. So I like the way we do Palm Sunday. Okay, don't get me wrong. But if we wanted to be a little bit closer to the feel, I think we should have children marching through, like, with machine guns. And and Sarah playing, like, Wagner on the piano. Or something like that. I mean, that would be a little bit... But it wouldn't be as sweet, so we're not going to change it, okay? I'm just saying that's the tone. People think... Messiah's come to, to set things right and get rid of the Romans and it's going to be great. And, and they're all singing Hosanna. Okay, what does that mean? They're shouting Hosanna. What does that mean? That sounds like blessedness or peace. And when we sing songs now, it sounds like, oh, you know, just like blessed, blessed, blessed be the name. It comes originally from, from two words, Hasha and Na, or Hosha. Hosha and Na. Hosha means save, rescue, deliver, help. And nah means please, just to intensify it. You know what they're saying? Son of David, please help. You know, Messiah, please rescue us, deliver. It's time. Rise up. Let's get it going. That's what's going on at this Palm Sunday. And you say, are you sure about that? Yeah, because Jesus is not happy. And he's not angry. Because he knows for years people have not been getting him. The disciples aren't quite getting it. The people he's teaching aren't quite getting it. He's teaching parables. He's shooting straight forward. He's telling them outright what's going to happen. It's not sinking in. It's not sinking in. It's not sinking in. You know how when you're looking for one thing, you can't see the other? They just can't see it. So he's coming in Jerusalem, and there's there's this verse where he says... Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he's weeping. He comes in sitting, he's weeping. Let's just go ahead and read the text here. I think we've got it up on the screen. As he, Jesus, approached Jerusalem, and the crowd's going crazy, and they're dancing and singing Hosanna, and saw the city, he wept over it. Now, can you imagine what's going on in all their minds? Okay, Jesus, you're riding in on a donkey. It's Passover. We're all ready to go. We're begging for your help. You are a miracle working you know, Lord, we, we know this. Why are you so distraught? Why are you crying? You should be happy. You should be like, woohoo! You ought to have a palm branch in each hand doing this too. Instead, you're weeping. What? He's weeping because they don't get it. There's this place where he says, you know, even now, you don't know, you don't know what would bring you salvation this day. They don't get it. They don't see it. And it's breaking his heart. He's not just Messiah. He's Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's both. He's the Lion of the tribe of Judah, but he's also the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. They don't get it. And that's why they turn on him a couple of days later. And if only they knew what it was that he was going to be doing, if only they knew it was going to come next, they wouldn't have been waving palm branches and shouting and laughing. and No, no. They would have changed their tune. And they did change their tune when they figured out Jesus was not going to give them what they wanted. 
Jesus was going to be a terrible disappointment to them. You ever, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation, I couldn't think of one for myself, but I could imagine that maybe you're dating somebody and they think you're wonderful and you just think if they only knew who I really was and they're singing your praises or they're, they're elevating you and you just think you got the wrong person. And it almost hurts your feelings because they're celebrating who you are not. That happens on occasion with people. And sometimes we just go out on dates. We try to hide who we are because they know we kind of think not only if they knew me, they wouldn't like me, but they're celebrating me for someone that I'm actually not. And that's why kids pretend to be something that they're not all the time because I'd rather be praised for something that I'm not than despised for something that I am. But here's Jesus. He spent years teaching people. And they totally don't get him. And they don't want him. God has chosen the lamb and the people are rejecting the lamb that God has chosen. You know, we often talk about later, the day of the cross, you know, when he carries the cross, the Via Dolorosa, where he's, you know, going to the to Calvary. And it's a painful day and it's a passionate moment. But I think Palm Sunday had to have been a deeply passionate and also equally wounding day. Because people are celebrating Jesus for who he is not. And he goes to the cross anyway. And, of course, about the cross, we know they shout for him to be crucified, and Jesus does get crucified. And and that's why the disciples are especially devastated when Jesus is crucified. It's not just that he dies. The disciples are not just devastated that Jesus has died. They're They're devastated because he died on a cross, because the cross, the crucifixion, was the signature of a failed Messiah. That's what the Romans did to every wannabe Messiah, as a sign to everybody else, hey, if anybody else has any bright ideas of trying to be Messiah, this is what's going to happen to you too. It was the signature of a failed Messiah. Nobody but Jesus fully understood that the culmination of his mission was going to involve him suffering and sacrificing and taking upon himself ultimately all the sin of the world for the benefit of you and of me, people who didn't get him, and then people who cheered for him to be crucified. Because he was such a disappointing Messiah. He humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it was for people who were crying for his crucifixion and people who were cheering for him and they didn't even know who he was and got him entirely, entirely wrong. And this is what makes the Messiah complex so uh, perplexing to me. And, and, And it is... Every human being who's ever lived has rebelled against being a servant. Every human being who's ever lived has suffered from illusions and delusions of grandiosity and superiority and sufficiency. And every human being who's ever lived in varying degrees has suffered from the Messiah complex. Except for one person. And he was the Messiah. And that is, I think, one of the most compelling reasons as to why Jesus should be your Messiah because there's never been another Messiah like him. Not in fiction, not in fact. No one even comes remotely close to Jesus. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Jesus, thank you for being the hero that 
we needed, not just the one that, that we wanted. In different ways, we have different stories and inclinations, and we just we want a Messiah that's going to fix things up out there and make our circumstances better. And But what we needed was a Savior to fix up what was going on inside of us, our sin, and not just the needing the forgiveness of the sins that we've done, but healing us from the inside out of our very sin nature. We, we, it's not just that we do the wrong things, it's that we want the wrong things. We want to live independently of you, and, and yet you, like no one else, turns our hearts toward God. You reveal the very nature of our Father, who is service and sacrificial love. You, you, you did. You, 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 you showed us. You revealed to us the, the nature of God. And you did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, and we certainly didn't deserve it. And so, Lord, as a room filled with recovering wannabe messiahs, we just want to say thank you for being something other than what we would naturally expect and being what we so desperately needed and still need. And, Father, I pray if there are any here this morning who have yet to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior, that by your Spirit you'd empower them to do this. Maybe someone here right now would just simply say, God, I know that I've sinned. I've fallen short. And I know I need a Savior. I need the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I, I know I've sinned and I know I need forgiveness, but I know where I can come to get it, and that is to Jesus Christ, the Lamb that God has chosen personally, the one without sin, the one without blemish who sacrificed for me. So, God, right now I just acknowledge my sin and my selfishness, my self-righteousness, and I turn to Jesus by faith as Savior and Lord. God, thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, if you pray that, I want to encourage you in that relationship. But for now, let's go ahead and stand as we continue and close in worship.